Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say that joining us on the phone is Stephen Stanley, Amherst Pierpont, Chief Economist. Stephen, good morning to you. Great to have you with us on the program. Good morning. Big question for a lot of our audience, whether this is an insurance rate cut that is about to come down from Chairman Powell or the beginning of a rate cutting cycle. Stephen, what are you telling clients right now? Well, I mean, obviously that depends on how the economy progresses, but I would say, you know, in my view, it's more of an insurance cut. I think the economy has proven um, to be in considerably better shape today than than we thought at the uh, previous meeting in June when the Fed essentially decided that they were going to need to... um, to invoke a cut in in July, so um, you know I, I I think it's premature to talk about whether there's going to be you know maybe one or two more, but I certainly don't envision this being a, a long series of cuts as you would expect if the economy were falling into recession. Say, what is GDP growth right now, and what is a tip point where Chairman Powell would continue to cut rates? Where, where's the Steve Stanley statistic on the run rate of the economy right now? Well, the first half of the year, we averaged 2.6. I think that's a pretty good um, metric of where we are now. I I expect growth in the second half of the year to be pretty similar uh, with the consumer continuing to lead the way. Um, You know, in terms of where the tipping point is for Chairman Powell, it's hard to say because from what I can tell, they're not really paying a lot of attention to growth. They're looking okay, at the, the, risk. Steve, this is the heart of the matter. I want to make clear, folks, Steve Stanley's won every award there is in GDP forecasting. You're at a 2.6. Let's say you massively are wrong, so it's only 2.3%. At what level would Steve Stanley cut interest rates? Well, you know, everybody thinks the trend is around 2%. I, I'm not sure why the Fed should be cutting rates when growth is above trend at this point. So, Stephen, how does he manage that message in the news conference today? What's the strategy for communication? I imagine they spent the last couple of days thinking about how to deliver what they need to say in this news conference, given that it's pretty limited, the material they have. They just have the statement and the news conference. How do they manage the message today? Yeah, I think it's going to be really tricky. Um, I, I think explaining the rate cut is, is maybe the easier part, um, and, and Powell did that in July. He cited three things. He cited downside risks around trade uncertainty. He cited weakness in the global economy, and he cited the fact that inflation is below, modestly below target. I think for me, the trickier thing is going to be the forward guidance, and that's really what people are focused on. Uh, The problem the Fed has is that it it professed to be data-dependent in June, and it really wasn't. We learned after the fact when we got the minutes that the Fed had more or less decided that they were going to cut in July as of the June meeting. And so how does the Fed communicate if they want to truly be data dependent going forward, how do they communicate that now? You know, no, no, we really mean it this time. Um, they certainly can't use the same language they used in June. So, Stephen, typically we'd have the summary of economic projections at a meeting with a news conference. Now we have a news conference at every meeting, and in some meetings we don't have a summary of economic projections. So, no new forecasts, no right. new dot plot. Is that an advantage or a disadvantage for the chairman today? Um. I mean, I guess it's a mild disadvantage, but I think that, you know, it it looks like a very wise move to invoke uh, press conferences at the end of every meeting, which um, Chairman Powell did for the beginning of this year. I mean, it gives them more flexibility. Remember, there was all the talk uh, in the prior regime that they could only cut or or hike at meetings where there was a press conference. Well, you know, it turns out July is the 
in the Fed's mind the proper time to be easing. And and if it, if we were still in the old mode, there wouldn't even be a press conference today. So um, you know, I think it turns out to be a good thing that uh, that the Fed is having press conferences after every meeting. And yeah, you know, that should give him plenty of. Uh, of room to explain uh, what the Fed is doing. I just think it's going to be a tricky message to deliver. Well, Stephen, let's talk about what the Fed is doing. You cited the three reasons to ease monetary policy. I imagine he might repeat them in the news conference today. Something he totally failed at was responding to a question from our very own colleague, Michael McKee, as to how easy a monetary policy will help given the challenges we have currently. How do lower rates help in this environment, Stephen? Well, I think that's a good question, and if I were Chairman Powell, I'd be doing everything I could to avoid that question because um, the reality is mm. the main thing that's holding the economy back right now, and, and again, we are growing above trend, so it's not like the economy's weak, but the main thing that's holding it back is uncertainty around trade policy, and there's right. literally nothing the Fed can do to, to, to resolve that. We were talking about this earlier this morning, Steve Stanley. If, the, if consumption is a plug, like it's pretty immovable, consumer just delivers what they deliver. What are we asking of investment in this country to jumpstart what I guess President Trump and others want? What are we, are we asking for a, a doubling of investment in the company at the margin? Well, I, I don't think you need a huge amount in terms of investment. I mean, look, we're at a point in the cycle. The unemployment rate is near 50-year lows. It's not like we need the economy to be growing tremendously above trend. Now, if you're the president and you're uh, less than 18 months from re-election, of course, you want the economy to be growing as fast as it can. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's I think, the, the sentiment behind his rhetoric. But if you're the Fed, you're just looking for uh, growth that kind of keeps things going. I think they are somewhat concerned about the fact that inflation has been running a little below target this year, but that feels like it's, um, even if it's not um, transitory, as Powell said in May, but then reneged on in June, it it does feel very structural. I'm not sure there's a whole lot the Fed can do about that either. Um, But, you know, I don't know that we need to be goosing the economy right now. I think the economy's fine. Steve Stanley, thank you so much. Hey, Steve, thank you. Greatly appreciate it. The great unspoken of so much of our politics and almost the Fed is trade. Like, what will Chairman Powell say today? Is, Is the head of the Fed supposed to address... A trade war? Yeah, I think he has to address it. He has to talk about what the risks are around the outlook. Yeah. I, I thought what, what I found really striking in the debates, not just the ones last night and the ones we're set to get again, the previous round too, barely any mention of what is happening with China. I mean, you're in Detroit. It yeah. should be the story. Core Democrats will vote Democrat. I get that. But if you want to win the election, start talking about yeah. the economy. <clears throat> and if you have one person that says you're losing your jobs and you're losing your jobs because of China, and then... Right another set of individuals not even referencing what's happening only one person is winning that debate because only one person is having it well meredith sumter with us with eurasia group on this topic meredith it's so important that the easy answer is it's about agriculture and i guess that'll be addressed in the president front and center with farmers but it's more than just agriculture isn't it it certainly is what this is this is really not about tariffs it's really not about trade at the heart of this tom is this is really the economic competition between two markedly different models. And yeah, but which we've had of those, that for years. 
it, we're now at more of a tipping point because the China state-backed capitalist model is, in the the views of Washington policymakers, on the verge of being able to overtake uh, the United States uh, in some of the key technology growth sectors of the future. And that's really what is driving not just the trade confrontation, but the broader U.S.-China technology war that we see playing out, most notably with Huawei. A series of governments just believed that China was going to look increasingly like the United States and the rest of the Western world as years progressed. A lot of people fell head over heels for that President Xi speech over in Davos a couple of years ago, rather foolishly, I think. Now we face what you say is a tipping point. And I just wonder how this rolls over. Is it something that just continues now the way it is at the moment, this tension year after year after year for a couple of decades? Or does something break? How do you frame that for clients at the moment, Meredith? My sense, this is going to be more of a of a long-term struggle than something that is necessarily going to break it. And look, we, we need to go back to how Washington and Beijing worked together in prior decades. Uh, there's this raging debate within Washington right now that the engagement policy of prior administrations, both Republican and Democratic, failed. And I think that's ultimately wrong. It was useful at that time. And as a former U.S. diplomat, I was at the table when we were pressing Beijing that they needed to make economic reforms that a couple years later, they would eventually make. They would get there. They were listening. But it was always in their own time frame. And it was always the kind of reforms that would still allow state uh, China's state capitalist model to be uniquely Chinese and not Western. And that's really where we are right now. Moving forward, all the signals that we're watching uh, as that engagement debate seems to be changing in Washington that is confirmed for Beijing that Washington can't live with China under Xi Jinping being China. And that as such, Xi Jinping is not no longer looking to reform China's model so that is more amenable to President Trump's America, but looking to do what he can to preserve the economic structures that he's put in place that he thinks is uniquely positioned to see China's economy transition um, and while retaining its unique characteristics. So perhaps fortunately for President Xi, the conversation at the moment is, will you sell product to Huawei and will you buy some agricultural products from our farmers in the United States? It seems to me that we've drifted away from some of the core issues at the moment, Meredith. Can we get back to the core issues again? I think that we would we need to get back to those core issues, but right now Washington and Beijing are they're having more surface level conversations, and even today you know, the the talks in Shanghai they wrapped early. That tells you that they are not getting to those core issues. And in fact, the, the, the levels of, if not trust, then at least sort of mutual understanding of yeah. where the both sides are, that's really sort of broken down. We need to get back to that in order to make substantial progress. Okay, you say tariffs don't matter. A lot of people, you know, they'll go, okay, great, except it does. If they are, if they are a tax on imports and a tax on Americans, who's winning the tariff war right now? What's, what's the partial score? Well, it, it, it is. Tariffs do matter, Tom. But in Eurasia Group's view, it's not necessarily the tariffs that are going to have the ultimate lasting impact. Right. It's the export controls. It's the investment restrictions. It's the attacks on each other's economic models that is going to cause the long-term destabilization. Okay, go, just for a minute here. I know Dr. Bremer doesn't want you to do this, but let's go short term. <laughs> yeah. Is it China 1, U.S. 0 right now on tariffs? Who's winning? 
Well, Americans are certainly paying those tariffs, uh, but China's own growth is markedly slowing 6. as well. Six point two percent. You know, what are we, John, in the U.S. splitting hairs between Steve Stanley's two point six percent and Sri Kumar's one point eight percent? There's no, there's no comparison when you start looking at growth that way yeah. between China and the United States. Yeah, I, I would, you're right. Even would, slowing growth is not bad growth in China, correct? I, I, yeah, I would agree with that. But I would look at what's happening in China at the moment, and, and I think it's. I think it would be a mistake to sit here and say that the United States is under more pressure, the president is under more pressure because there's an election next year. We always seem to make that mistake and boil it down to electoral politics, Meredith. And I'd like you to give us a little bit more clarity as just to how much pressure President Xi is under right now, not to get this wrong, because there are some people that think perhaps he's overstepped in the last couple of years. Perhaps he's taken been a little bit too bold with Made in China 2025, and this is the blowback from that previously. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. He is under increased pressure. And I, I say this as the, the Chinese Communist Party leadership are preparing to go to their annual summer retreat, where I'm sure that Xi Jinping will be in listening mode, not just on the U.S.-China trade confrontation, but on the blowback with BRI. We've seen him scale back uh, that program slightly and look to tweak it to address the criticisms there. Also, what's happening in Hong Kong, we have an upcoming presidential election in, in Taiwan that could move that island further away from, from Beijing's grasp. So he's got a lot of pressure coming at him. But what's key here is that there is no one that could possibly replace Xi Jinping now. He has neutralized any potential successors. And so all the power still rests with him. His position is still relatively strong regardless. What do you see in the Mandarin press? What do you see? One of your great gifts is to be able to read all this in real time. What are they actually writing? I love when you ask me this question every time, Tom. I would say that there is a market shift away from what kind of reforms might be necessary to reach a deal and more so to what can we do to shore up our own unique state capitalist system to wave off onward pressure coming from Washington. So they are managing the tension coming from Washington. They're not looking to solve any problems. Is it a vacuum for Europe right now? I mean, can they slip right in here and become more dominant to those important Chinese view questions? I certainly think China will be looking to replace some of its relationships with Washington, with Europe, Latin America, other key key economies. But those same concerns about Chinese industrial policies, yeah. investment practices, they're in European capitals too, to a somewhat of a, a lesser right. extent. They they would prefer a different approach than that taken by President Trump. Right. But they do share those concerns. One final question. Should John and I do a road trip to Hong Kong in, in November, you know, just to get out front of the big changes? I'd love to see you guys in Hong Kong in November. That's good. Meredith Sumter, you should come back. Are you planning the next couple of months for I'm us? working on it. Yeah, you know. That's right? nice. You know, there's a lot going on there. Priya Misra, Head of Rate Strategy for TD Securities, joining us now as we count you down to that Fed decision. Priya, just begin with what you're looking for in several last time. Hi, uh, John. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Hi, Tom. Um, so we are looking for the 25 base point of cut uh, that is pretty much baked in the cake, I would argue. I think all the focus is going to be on forward guidance and really what the uh, what the threshold is for the next ease. You know, does, does data need to get worse for the Fed to ease again, or are they still going to continue to add insurance cuts? So 
I think that's really going to be the focus. Uh, there's also some talk around this 50 base point cut. I think it's very hard to message that because if they go 50 and talk about going more, then the market might say, you know, what does the Fed know that we don't know? If they don't go 50, they can go 25 and I think keep that uh, optionality out there. The other thing that the Treasury market, I, I think overall uh, markets will look at, will be on the balance sheet. So remember, the balance sheet is supposed to, or, or, or uh, rather balance sheet runoff. Balance sheet runoff is slated to end in September. But, you know, it's hard for the Fed to, I think, communicate that they are actually easing on the rate front, but they continue to tighten on the balance sheet front. So they might end that. I think that's pretty bullish for Treasuries because now it implies that the Fed is going to be buying as much as, you know, $20 billion, uh, of Treasuries in, in the open market. So it's not QE, but it, it will look like a little bit, uh, uh, you know, like a small QE. So Priya, just to jump in just quickly on this issue because you're not alone. Sure. Bank of America, JP Morgan also think that we could get an end to balance sheet roll off early, but it's only a couple of months early. Why is that material? So it's not so material in terms of uh, of the total amount of reserve drainage, but where it is material is that the Fed will be potentially buying as much as $20 billion. So I, I think what the market doesn't quite appreciate is that uh, because rates have fallen, mortgage runoff is, is running fairly high. So it's about 15 to $20 billion a month. Yeah. Now, the Fed is probably going to continue to let mortgages run off, but they're going to replace mortgages with treasuries. So for the first time since QE ended, the Fed will be in the open market buying treasuries. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not a couple of billion. They'll be buying $20 billion a month. So that's going to add right. some, uh, you know, downward pressure on rates. Is any of this in Fabozzi? I mean, you and I, we rounded through six, seven, eight hundred pages of Fabozzi. People like you, Priya, you just sort of gl- glibly say, you know, 20 billion this, 20 billion that. What is the right. outcome of this original policy? Yeah, I think the outcome of the original QE was to take duration risk out of the market. Fair. This is about just keeping policy unchanged and allowing the Fed to ultimately return to an all-treasury portfolio. But it is a new marginal buyer in town. So, you know, I think with all this talk about deficits, you know, continuing to rise, well, you've got another buyer John, is there any positive Swiss yield? No. The answer is no. I mean, Priya, the price of this is disincentivizing normal processes in finance. How do we get to, how do we get back to normal processes? Well, I think we're redefining normal, right? If if uh, our star, which I think the Fed was hoping was close to 50 base points to 1%, what if it's actually zero in the U.S.? And so what if we were actually tighter monetary policy? You know, as much as we'd like to blame this on the trade war, maybe the Fed should not have raised rates as much as it did. So now if they're taking it down, I know they're going to pitch it as, as insurance cuts, but I think it's possible that policy was restrictive. So now if they take that back and R-star actually goes down, is that going to be stimulative? I'm actually very skeptical that insurance cuts work. I think we're yeah. in the starting phase of a slowdown. I'm not sure 25 or even 50 base points do a whole lot because financial conditions are pretty easy. So I think the Fed will pitch this as insurance and then they'll have to continue to do more because I just don't yeah. think any of the global uncertainty is going away. Did you know that in Portland, Oregon, every time someone mentions our star, they have a drinky game where you have a shot of blend coffee. Espresso. How, how drunk do you get? You, you, you have coffee. They don't, they don't, you know, they don't. You just get caffeinated. They, they, they have blend coffee. It sounds like a really weird drinking it's, game. Every time our, it came out of San Francisco, that's a city south. Is it Portland. Starbucks coffee? No, no one drinks Starbucks coffee. That, you know, they're everywhere, but no, blend coffee. Okay. Killingsworth what, Road. What's the relevance of this? It's a, our start. I mean, where's, oh. where's oh. our start? Oh, no, I totally get, get it now. This. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Where's our start in this? Nobody knows. Thank you, Priya. Very easy. You'll only know in hindsight. You know, that, oh, maybe we were above our star. Such a nebulous concept. Well, Priya, have they um, found out that they were above it? You know, I don't, I, I think we just won't know. Um, I think the Fed so far doesn't, I mean, clearly the president thinks that we were much above our star. I think the Fed is attributing this not so much to them having tightened too much, but more that, you know, new uncertainties have come in. And this inflation, we don't know if the Phillips curve exists, how flat is it? Maybe it's a straight line, a horizontal line. So there's so many unknowns that I'm almost hoping that they don't rely too much on our star and instead communicate different reaction functions. We have a very different, which is why I think, you know, uh, Bill Dudley's comments, that's the old guard. We're in a new Fed and a very new, uh, different reaction function where they want to be more aggressive. Is Chairman Powell in the old guard? No, I would argue he, Clarida, Williams, I think that's the new guard that they just don't want to go back to the zero lower bound. So rather than waiting for data to suggest that they need to ease, let's go early. What's the cost of going early? Well, inflation, but actually inflation's running so low that that's not a problem. I'm a little nervous around financial stability. I think that's been swept away a little bit. So you'll get the couple of dissents with people who think that, well, maybe we shouldn't be that you know, that prevention is better than cure, but there is some unintended consequences of easing when you don't need to ease. So you'll get the few dissents, but I think the core of the committee is in the camp that let's ease. We, the cost of, of that prevention is not that high. We've had a range of people warning about easy monetary policy. Morgan Stanley's Rishi Sharma in the New York Times. Scott Minard of Guggenheim talking about the same thing. He referenced the New York Fed president, the former New York Fed president, Bill Dudley, running for Bloomberg Opinion, all warning about easy monetary policy and what it could mean for financial stability and markets down the road. Well, let's talk about markets, Priya. Germany came out with a 10-year Bund auction this morning, a yield of negative 0.41%, below the depot rate. In Europe, Morgan Stanley have this argument and it goes as follows. And Andrew Sheets, Mike Wilson and others have really been driving it forward. If you believe the easing would work, the commodity complex would be rallying. If you believe the easing would work, you would expect inflation expectations to pick up materially. If you believe the easing would work worldwide, you'd expect 10 year, 30 year yields to start to drift higher. So let me ask you this, Priya. If we get a rate cut, if we get several rate cuts, if we get ECB easing, do you just see the whole curve being pulled down or can we get some steepness? Can we get the long end to start to pick up a bit? I think if it's just the monetary policy side that's easing, I don't think you get that steepening. And particularly if the Fed yeah. keeps calling this insurance cuts. If we're going back to zero, we're doing QE, you know, forget about any asset bubble um, uh, risk around here. I think then you can get that steepening. If you get any fiscal easing, you can get that steepening. But, you know, monetary policy can only yeah. go that far. So if we're just talking about a few rate cuts, I think you don't get that steepening yield curve. And no. I completely hear you. I think the market saying these insurance cuts don't work. And the Fed's going to have a tough time if the data doesn't pick up to say that this is just a few cuts <laughs> right. that we're putting in place. Priya, thank you so much. Thanks, Priya. Priya. TD Securities. Right now, uh, we're going to dash to uh, Detroit. Kevin Cirilli is in Detroit at the Fox Theater where they're having a Democratic debate. Kevin, an open question. What's the difference between these debates versus the previous debates? I think it's getting more serious, and I think you're starting to see that. 
in terms of the candidates last night yeah. uh, and, and really the contrast that was drawn. You know, I just spoke with Tom, chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez, uh, and, and he made that case as well. You know, in the spin room, you know, the issues of whether or not the nominee can be for Medicare for all or not and unite the party was the talk of the spin room. But Chairman Perez made the point that, look, ultimately, they're going to have to have differences of opinion in the party, regardless of who the nominee is. But I said this earlier on, on Bloomberg TV with you, Tom, but I think it, it's worth repeating in the sense that Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Bernie Sanders, in terms of the policy arguments, they are setting the parameters of the debate and every other candidate is reacting to what their plans are. Uh, and and they're on, the other candidates are on defense. Kevin, I've got to ask you about the format. A, a lot of people are frustrated with this format. Why can't they just put the yeah. tier one candidates on one night and the tier two, three and four on another night? We want to see all of the main, all of the front runners together on one night. What are they doing? Yeah, Biden and Warren. Yeah. You know, look, I, it's such a fair question, John. I, I, I asked it to, to Chairman Perez. Uh, their thinking was when the Republicans had this issue in the 2016 cycle, they had the main stage debate and then the kiddie table debate. And they were criticized for not giving, you know, the lower tier candidates enough of a shot, enough of a chance. So yeah. they tried to take the opposite approach. But come the fall... The, the requirements to qualifying for a debate become more difficult of a threshold to reach, and you're going to start to see pressure and the field dwindle down. Kevin, what's the money game right now? I mean, I saw a poll that Mr. Biden is very nicely ahead of the others, et cetera, et cetera. But within the pros that you spend all your time with, what's the dynamic right now they're commenting on? Well, I mean, that's why some of these lower tier candidates, to Jonathan's point, it, it, it's so important is because we always talk about a viral campaign and having that viral moment. All that viral campaign leads to is an opportunity to fundraise and to raise big bucks. And so if you're Beto O'Rourke, you know, you might have had a big start and gotten some a couple million bucks in the bank when you launched yeah. on Vanity Fair. But... You know, you know that those those campaigns and the burn rate of those campaigns, as someone put it to me yesterday, uh, that's yeah. that becomes very difficult to sustain. Right. What happens tonight? Uh, Biden, Kamala, Biden, Booker. Is Biden formidable? Is Biden a formidable front runner? Uh, uh, there's pressure. Tonight so what's the Biden on, on approach? Biden. Is Biden's approach to step out and be aggressive? Well, hopefully he's actually prepared he... to have a have a fight well, this time because I found it unbelievable, Kevin, that he turned around after the debates and effectively the reporting was that he wasn't prepared for people to go after him. Exactly. And he says, I mean, and you've seen this in terms of like last last cycle or last debate in Miami. He didn't even go into the spin room. He hadn't even he was criticized for not even going and giving interviews. And now you've started to see that the campaign is putting him out more. Look for that. Yeah. Look for how he clashes with, with Harris. But also right. look. And I, I say this, it bears repeating. Look to see how he draws an ideological contrast with the candidates yeah. not on the stage, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. How cool is the Fox Theater? It's the one jewel that wasn't torn down. Amazing. Isn't oh, it's it? awesome. Elvis Presley performed there, you know, Motown, Aretha Franklin. I'm actually standing outside of the Parks and Rec Diner at 1942 Grand River yeah. Avenue. It's like this famous diner, so I'm yeah. getting more coffee and full day ahead, full day ahead. Cirilli coughing up for the Fox Theater in 1928. Be well, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. 
Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.